Welcome to Arbor Bridge Church's weekly podcast with your teacher, Daryl Canty. Arbor Bridge Church exists to bridge the gospel and our community by connecting people to Jesus and each other. Visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com. Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So a rich young man asked Jesus this question, um, and Jesus' Jesus's response is a test um, for the young man. Jesus takes him, he walks him through this path, uh, kind of leads him to, to uh, kind of uncover uh, where the man puts his trust. Um, and, and, and through the test, Jesus reveals that the young man puts his trust in his discipline, um, his, his discipline and his ability to be disciplined and his money. So when the young man asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus leads him down this path and ends up landing on, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Uh, I mentioned last week that throughout Christian history, um, Christians, some Christians have thought that this command is for all Christians. And I I respectfully disagree with that. Um, Jesus is saying that in order to have eternal life, you need to get on a path towards undivided loyalty and full hearted obedience. While you're on this earth, you won't be perfect at that, but you need to get on the path toward it. And in this case, Jesus is saying that the, for, to, he's saying to the specific man, your money is in the way of that happening. So think about, you know, do this thing, you know, do this thing, get rid of it. And when we read it, you know, when you read it from, from outside, you know, you know it's, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, get rid of your money. But I mean, think of that, the radicalness of that request. Sell everything you have, give, what, give it away to the poor and then come follow me. That's, a, that's an incredibly difficult thing to ask him to do. And the man's response is, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Jesus finds something that the man can't accomplish on purpose, though. He, he does that, you know, he, you can't accomplish it through discipline. Um, he gets to the heart of the one thing he trusts. He trusts most and says, you know, get rid of it. But his response is, I can't do that. And, and if, if he, he, the man didn't, doesn't say that out loud, but if the man did say it out loud, Jesus would say, I know. I know you can't do it. That's, that's why I asked you to, that's why I asked for that thing is because I knew you couldn't do it. I knew you couldn't muscle your way into it. But then Jesus would say, would you trust me? Would you trust me? Would you trust me anyway? Would you trust me enough to begin with what you can do? Um, would you take one, one baby step towards undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience? Would you, would you just... In this life, as humans, we're torn between you know, our, our, our affections for God's gifts and God himself. The things that God gives, we start to love more than we love him. Uh, and God has to deal with that in us. He has to deal with that. that because divided loyalty is, is so dangerous. It's so dangerous for our hearts. Um, and Roman, Romans 1, some of you guys know that Romans 1 talks about loving things that God created more than loving him and how it leads to these awful things. It leads to lust and worthless, you know, worthless thinking and greed and hatred and jealousy and murder and fighting and lying. And a life like this you know, ends, ends in destruction. And so no wonder, no wonder when Jesus interacts with this guy where he can see he's, he's got this divided loyalty, he says, listen, You've got to get rid of that. 
This is dangerous. This is so dangerous. I want to look at, I want to look at what it looks like to obey what Jesus is saying here, to get rid of divided loyalty. So around 2,000 years before Jesus shows up on earth, it's a, it's a brutal time to be alive. Um, might makes right. Um, if you're strong enough to take something, you took it. If you saw someone else's wife and you wanted her, you killed her husband and took it. If, if you saw a town, you came on a town that you saw and it was by water. I mean, it was, you say, I want that town. You get an army together, you take it. Uh, it, it was a time where it was a culture where people sacrificed their children to gods all the time. Um, when, when a couple would sacrifice their child, um, they, they, they sacrificed their firstborn and they often would hope that the gods would smile on them. They would say, okay, I gave you my firstborn. Now all the rest of my, you know, all the rest of the children I have and all, all the rest of my life, you, I want you to bless because, you know, I've given you my first child. The, the Bible describes this culture, you know, by saying it's all kinds of evil happening and describes the people as wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. So into that world, into that world, God steps in and he meets with this guy named Abraham. And God promises Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And this is very appealing to Abraham. We've talked about this before. This is appealing to Abraham because up to this point, uh, you know, him and his wife haven't been able to have children. Some of you guys know that 4,000 years ago, you know, if you weren't able to have children, you know, it messed with your mind. Uh, and, and, and obviously you can make the case that it's still today, you know, it messes with your mind. It messes with your self-image. Uh, you'd question your value. Uh, what kind of man am I if, if I can't give my wife children? Or what kind of woman am I? Uh, what kind of woman am I if I can't make my husband a father? Abraham and his wife have lived like 70 years, 75 years of their life dreaming of having children. God knows that he shows up and he says, I'm going to fulfill your dream. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you a nation of children. 25 years after that original promise was made, um, Abraham and his wife have their son, Isaac. And Isaac is their miracle child. He's like, you know, a hundred years old when he has this. So Isaac is their miracle child. Their dream come true. They would have said something like, you know, many of us would say he was a, our son is our world. Our son is everything to us. So then this, sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Abraham's rich, right? Abraham's rich. So if God wants to test him, why doesn't he say, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Why doesn't he say that? He just said to the, you know, said to the rich young man, he, why, why doesn't he say that to him? Because God wants to speak to what your heart is devoted to. So when God talks to Abraham, he doesn't talk money. He talks legacy and son. Son. 
I feel like we can't talk about this story. So again, I, you, those of you guys who've been in church for a long time and you've Maybe this doesn't, this doesn't bother you and you're okay with it. I feel like I can't talk about this story without saying, this is disturbing. <laughs> this is, I don't like it. And again, I feel like as a Jesus follower, we should be able to admit that if you feel uncomfortable with it, maybe you don't, maybe you're good with it, but I feel uncomfortable with it. I should, it's troubling if, to me. And if you read it and give any pause to it, it's a troubling thing. An author and Jesus follower, Stephanie Quick, says it, said it like this. The 22nd chapter of Genesis, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, is an uncomfortable episode confronting what we believe to be true about the kindness of God. I feel like that's a really honest thing to say. Because I've got ideas in my mind about what the kindness of God looks like, and it does not look like that. Famous, some of you guys have heard this. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins says this about this story. God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his, long, his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood on it, and trussed Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking after all tempting Abraham and testing his faith. A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example of simultaneous, simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the, New, the Nuremberg defense, I was, only, I was only obeying orders. Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. If I'm honest, and again, I, I'm, I'll just be honest with you, there's some parts about what he's saying makes sense to me. This story makes me uncomfortable. This story makes me uncomfortable. Let me say this. 20 years ago, I think like 2003, uh, maybe some of you guys remember this, there was this story of a Texas woman who killed her three sons. She killed two of them and almost killed the third one. Gruesome, terrible, terrible. And when she was asked why she did it, this is what she said. God told me to do it. I did it because God told me to do it. And we are all horrified. <laughs> we are horrified by that. And we are, we are horrified and appalled and we think she's crazy. But we make a rock star out of Abraham <laughs> and say, he has so much faith. I want us to think through this together in a way, and again, let's be honest. I want us to think through this story together in a way that will not make you, you know, it's not going to make us feel good about this story and be like, yeah, Abraham killing his son. Woo. There's no, there's nothing. What am I going to say to make you feel that? But I want us to think about it in a way that may help us to think differently about it. So there's really, there's this really smart Bible scholar nerd guy um, named Greg Boyd. He talks about this. He shares this idea um, that we shouldn't take this story and form our entire picture of who God is from this story. 
right? Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at Genesis 22 and say, okay, let me get my picture of who God is from Genesis 22. <laughs> consider this, consider this. Let's say, um, let's say you're a veterinarian and today you killed a horse. Uh, it, it, the nice way that to say that, you know, is we put him to sleep or we euthanized him or, you know, something like that. He had a broken leg. And many of you guys know that often when horses break their legs, they're euthanized. As a vet or as a person, you don't want the story of you killing a horse to be the thing that defines you as a person or as a vet. You don't want that. You, Imagine this, imagine a second grade teacher bringing her kids on a field trip to your vet clinic and they just happen to see you euthanize a horse. All those kids are going to, all those kids are going to see is that you're a horse murderer, right? That one story will define who you are in their minds. I saw that person kill a horse. Now consider this, when God interacts with us, he is always, he was always descending to our level so that we can have any idea of what he's talking about. He's always descending to our level to, to, to be able to, to, to inter, have any interaction with him. In just a few weeks, we're all going to celebrate uh, God becoming a baby. Clearly, we should not use just that picture of God being a baby to form our entire picture of who he is. Know this also, God descends and becomes our sin. God descends and becomes a curse for us. He takes on, he takes on an appearance far uglier than he actually is. The ugly picture of God as our curse, God as our sin should not inform the entirety of who he is. God sometimes reveals himself by humbly stooping, descending, allowing himself to look uglier than he actually is in order to save us, in order to have communication to us, in order for us to be like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be like. So in regards to Abraham's story, here's what Greg Boyd is saying, and I think I agree. We should see this story as God humbly stooping down to enter into a fallen world of Abraham, a culture full of people doing awful things, make it, might makes right, idol worship, child sacrifice. God meets those people right where they are, working with their fallen cultures and worldviews, and he uses what they know to bring them to a place where he can reveal a fuller picture of what he's really like. I think he's right. I think he's right. Second, think of this. God's tests aren't like our tests. God tests us to strengthen us. When Dawkins is thinking of God testing Abraham, he's thinking of how we do tests. Like, you know, God's, you know, something like, if you love me, prove it. Or I need you to do something in order to make me feel secure about me. Or myself, you know, or, or um, your love for me. I need you to prove. Um, let me say it like this. So when I was in middle school, um, I dated this girl. This was my, my first girlfriend. I thought she was wonderful, the best thing ever. She broke up with me. Yeah. Then a few months later, a few months later, a few months later, she uh, 
she asked me to be her boyfriend again. And I was like, heck yes, of course. And a few minutes after that, she said, well, I was just joking. <laughs> totally whack, right? We're friends on Facebook. I'll send it to you. You guys could let her know that was terrible. She, you know, again, in middle school, you know, we do all, we all, we do all kinds of silly things, but she, she, she wanted to use me to feed her ego. She wanted to know if I still wanted to be her boyfriend and I did. And so, you know, she, she used that situation. It was like a test. She used clearly, clearly God doesn't need us to make him feel good about himself. And on top of that, on top of that, think about this. He knew what Abraham would do in this test before Abraham was born. The test wasn't for God's benefit. The test was for Abraham's benefit. And the word test might be better worded exercise or workout. It's an exercise to strengthen Abraham into the image of Christ, uh, which, which could not happen unless he goes through it. Even though God knows on this side of it, what's going to happen? It can't strengthen him to who he's supposed to be unless he goes through it. One Bible, one Bible scholar says it this way, Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us. Third thing, we have to learn to treasure what God does to turn us into the image of Christ. We have to learn to treasure what God does and God's doing to turn us into the image of Christ. So this, this, and this is the key to understanding Genesis 22. Uh, one, 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 I, I, I shared with you part of what uh, one author said. And I want to share the whole thing with you. The 22nd, she says this, the 22nd chapter of Genesis where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son is an uncomfortable episode confronting what we believe to be true about the kindness of God and the cost of conforming to his image. I'm going to read it again. The 22nd chapter of Genesis, where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, is an uncomfortable episode confronting what we believe to be true about the kindness of God and the cost of conforming to his image. I think that conforming to his image is like coming to church and listening to my worship songs. Conforming to the image of Christ is far more painful and far more difficult and far more costly than we like to imagine or we like to pretend. God is desperate to give us his eternal life, life forever. But we are so focused on this life. So in this, in this story, in this story, hear me on this. In this story, Abraham is in danger of loving something that God created more than loving God. That is dangerous. That is so dangerous. The focal point of the story isn't the danger that Isaac's in. It's the danger that Abraham is in. But we are so focused here that when we read that story, all we can see is Isaac's danger and we can't see Abraham's danger that is forever danger. It's a danger that lasts more. God wants to save Abraham and clearly he's willing to risk offending us to do it. 
2,000 years from now, we read this, we're like, I'm offended by that. God's like, I don't care. I want to save Abraham. And if I have to offend you to do it, I don't care. He's willing to risk that. God needs to get Abraham to transfer his trust in his dream or his legacy or whatever to God, undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. And he's willing to do hard things to do it. One author describes it as obedience that does not protect even what's most precious, but trust God in the future. In order to understand this story, we, we have to learn to value that kind of obedience being developed in us. And if we don't value that, we'll never, you know, we'll always be distracted by the request and, and always miss the point of the story. This is why Dawkins, he says all those things about that story. He's like, he can't get what we're talking about right now. In verse one, God calls Abraham. Notice what his response to God is. Listen to what he says. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham. And Abraham replied, here I am. Here I am. When my kids were young, we'd have them respond to their mom or I, you know, with yes, mom or yes, dad, or even better, even better. Sometimes when we would call their name and they weren't in the room, we would want them to respond with yes, dad coming. So one, I'm acknowledged that I've heard you. And two, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. And clearly it didn't always go perfectly, but that was the goal. When they did it, we wanted the attitude to be something like this. Here I am. What do you need? What, what can I do? In the Bible, when God's people responded to God this way, it was a way of saying, at your service, whatever you want. In the book of First Samuel, God calls a young man named Samuel and his response is, here I am. Does God need Samuel to tell him his location? Like God's like, I, don't, I can't find Samuel. Where's that guy at? Samuel, here I am. Oh, God is looking for a response to him. It's a, it's a, it's a surrender. Here I am. What do you need? Another verse, another, another occasion. God's talking. He, he's talking out loud. He's saying, I need people to send. To, I need people to send to, so I can share the message. I need people who are willing to go and, and spread my message. And this guy, this guy named Isaiah steps up and he says, here I am. You can send me. Here I am. I surrender. Tell me what you want me to do. Abraham's story in verse one begins with that. Here I am at your service. What do you want? And God uses Abraham's statement. He's like, when Abraham comes forward, he says, here I am. God uses that. He's okay. You for real? Let's see. Let's do it. Let's go all the way. Let's go all the way. 
He uses the whole thing to make it real all the way through Abraham's heart. And then, and then just, before, just before Abraham's about to go through with what God's asked him to do, God calls Abraham again. He says, he says Abraham. And Abraham's response is this. Here I am. So in between God's original ask, where he says, here I am, whole story all the way to the end, God, he's just about to do it. Same response. And you know, again, I'm like Ron, like I was talking with somebody about this and they said, Daryl, I think you could probably do it. I'm like, no, (laughs) there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. I'd be like, I'm not doing that. No, no. So I would fail the test. In between this time, there's several days in between God asking Abraham to do this. And so we don't get to find out what's going on in between those three days or whatever, but it has to be a a fist fight. Or I I mean, I I can't imagine what he's going through between now and then. And if if I said, here I am at the beginning, over here, I'd be like, don't bother me. (laughs) Don't talk to me. But on the front end, he says, here I am. And on the back end, he says, here I am. I'm about to do what you asked me to do. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not harm him. Now I know that you would do anything for God, which I, I hate the wording of that. It's like, now I know. It's like, what it probably would be better to say is that now you know. Now you know. You have not held anything back from me, your son, your only son. And after that moment, God provides a ram for Abraham to use in his sacrifice instead of Abraham's son. And so then Abraham calls the place where he makes the sacrifice. He, he calls the place, the Lord will provide a lamb. Which is, Clearly he did, right? Clearly he did provide a lamb. God sent his son to be sacrificed, but this time he goes through with it. The knife's not stopped and his son is killed. That's the way to eternal life. You put your trust, you put our, we put our trust in Christ. I shared a little version of this story last week. Um, so and if you were here, be patient with me. So if you're on a boat with your child and it was sinking, and you were trying to get your, your child to safety, or you're trying to get your child to hold on to a life preserver before the ship went down, but he wouldn't. Instead, he wanted to hold on to a cinder block. And, and, and the more you talk to him about giving up the cinder block to hold on to the life preserver, the more they, they said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to chain myself to this so that you don't try to take it from me. He thinks the cinder block would be better at saving him than the life preserver. Let me ask you this. Boat's going down. What would you be willing to say? What would you be willing to do to get your kid to give up that cinder block in order to hold on to the life preserver? You, you would do next to anything. You would do next to anything. That's what God's doing in Genesis 22. That's what God's doing in Genesis 22. 
he is trying to save Abraham from a certain death. And it won't work to hold on to both. You know, I'm going to hold on to both then, make sure. You know how that works, right? Abraham was holding on to both and God saved him. Me and you, you we're like that, right? We want to hold on to both. I want to hold on to a cinder block, hold on to a life preserver. Maybe, or maybe you just hold on to a cinder block. God's calling for our, uh, our obedience. He's calling your name. And you get to show up and say, here I am. Just say that. Just say, here I am. I don't know. I, like, I'm not even sure what this is going to be like. I'm not sure what's going to go down, but here I am. God's calling for uh, obedience, which doesn't protect what's most precious, but, but trust God with the future. So, as we take communion today, uh, maybe you would allow that to be your response to God. Here I am. Communion is a time, obviously, when we focus, we, we focus on the death and resurrection of Christ, what our response should be to it. How should we respond to, to this thing? Um, and as we do, we drink a little bit of grape juice and that represents his blood, and we eat a little cracker that represents his body. We're going to take time to do that in just a moment. And before we do that, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. And in my prayer, I'm just going to be, I'm going to be praying basically for us. Here I am. Here I am. For early Christians, first century Christians, if we, um, if we walked, if we, you know, we went to a time machine and, and walked into the room for one of their, their worship services, we, we might have thought that there was like a calisthenics class. I mean, they, they, they did things with their body. They understood that their body and their souls are connected. And so they did things with their bodies. Um, there's a connection. So d- during their worship services, they would stand, they would kneel, they'd raise their arms, they'd sit on the floor, they'd, they'd you know, they Again, it was far less formal than what we do. So sometimes by doing those things, uh, it helped them worship better. So when I pray in just a moment, I, I want to give you permission. You can do whatever you want. I'm not, your, not the boss of anything in the world. I, I just want to give you permission to do, to do those things. Sit, stand, kneel, put your hands up, surrender. Uh, you know, here I am. Here I am. And whatever you feel led to do, you know, during this next prayer, I want to encourage you to do that give you permission to do that, give you the freedom to do that. Whatever is going to help you have undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience to Christ. And if there's something that you need to do with your body that will help you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make that move. I'm going to make that step. I'm going to say, okay, sit, stand, kneel, whatever you want. Uh, and maybe you're, you're most comfortable just sitting. That's, that's between you and the Lord. But I want you to encourage you, no matter what, to have that, have that be your prayer. Here I am. Let's pray together about that. <clears throat> Dear Lord. We pray 
for you to bring into our hearts undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. Conform us to the image of Christ. That's the vision of what we have, of what we want to be like. And we present ourselves to you to take us on the journey to make that happen. Here I am. Do what you must do to get me there. Here I am. Do what you must do to get me there. I pray that when we read Genesis 22, we will see what you see. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information on our church, visit us online at arborbridgechurch.com.